The My Comic Shop History Patreon page is live and needs your support. If we hit $100 a month in pledges by Wednesday, August 1st, I will launch my Super Fan History, a monthly five-episode Superman-themed podcast spotlighting the Man of Steel across media. If you enjoy this show and you want more exclusive content, be sure to head on over to the Patreon page and pledge. Special shout-out to our newest VIP patrons, Justin Tremor and Carrie Ann Stout. Patreon.com slash MyComicShopHistory. Don't be a flat squirrel. Welcome to Beyond My Comic Shop. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Our convention-themed season is taking a break for the summer. In its place is a four-part miniseries, Buying Books with Ben. My guest for all four episodes is Zap Comics co-owner Ben Lichtenstein. This summer, we'll be taking a deep dive into Ben's extensive collection-buying practices. Ben, welcome. Thank you for coming, and, and thanks for having me on the podcast again. I'm so excited to have you back. That's right. It's welcome back. You were on the show. You were on My Comic Shop History last season. I have to tell you, that was the highest-rated episode of the season and one wow. of the highest-rated episodes of the entire series. That is really funny. Well, great. Uh, I'm not sure why, but... <laughs> well, I, I think it speaks to a couple of things. Uh, for one, uh, you guys, you and, and your t- you guys were great about sharing the episode and getting the word out. Sure. Other yeah. stores were as well, but you guys really, really got it out there, and that was a huge help, and I appreciate that. Yeah, Corey, Corey does a great job with the social media really sharing. That's true. Good. And then I have to tell you, both online and in person with people I've spoken to, a lot of great feedback. People were really interested to hear about you, your store, and again, the collection buying, which is why I'm back to do this. Very cool. Well, you know, people, even people that are not into comics at all, when I meet random people, um, you know, through my kids or my neighborhood, people are very interested. They're they're fascinated by this, you know, because they watch American Pickers and Pawn Stars, and they're fascinated by this whole thing where I go and I go in someone's house and I'm looking at their old stuff and, you know, how uh, people have a fascination with it, especially now more than ever with all these reality shows. So it's, uh, it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to the extent that you do this, you know, not a lot of other comic shops are in a position to do it the way you do. I mean, you're traveling across the country in terms of the, the quantity of books and the prices. I mean, again, just not a lot of stores are in that position. So it's really interesting. I mean, sometimes it could be, you know, over a hundred long boxes and tens of thousands of dollars for one collection that you're buying. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty true. remarkable. Yeah, it's definitely something I've, I've built up. Like I mentioned in the original podcast, it's something that I love doing. So, you know, it's just like almost any uh, livelihood. When you love doing something, you're going to probably uh, put your put your best effort into it. And um, that's my, my favorite part of the business. So I don't mind like these long drives. Um, and, you know, it, it could be a real schlep. You know, you're loading a truck. And for instance, last week, we bought a nice collection. Uh, it was a guy down in South Jersey. He had 130 plus long boxes, 1960s and up. And he called all the stores down there, and they were sort of interested. But really, it's actually hard to absorb all that and process all that unless you have a you know a whole team of people. But you know, I went in there. I kind of did my math with the calculations like I do. I have you know my little formulas and blah blah blah. And, and, you know, I, I came up with a, a one number, and then I said, well, I know he's going to, he's really shopping this thing around. So I just came up, I added like $5,000 to it, because I just wanted just to get it, seal it up. I don't want to get a bidding war, into a bidding war. 
And it, that's actually what I'm working on right now. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you go there and it, it's always a pain when it's in a basement. I always dread when they're in a basement because you can imagine stairs and long boxes and, right. and narrow hallways. And, and that's always uh, not fun. But um, it's, it, it's a great collection. There's tons of key books. Um, and so, the, you know, the point is um, it's a lot of work, actually, but the fact that I love it makes it quite easy. And, and that one sticks out because I literally just a few days ago bought that. Right. Yeah, I mean, loving what you do can make all the difference. And yeah. it's fun. I mean, since we spoke the first time, I've you know really been keeping a close eye on you know the Zap Facebook page and other social media. And so I see, you know, I see these photos of you uh, in front of the van, laying on top of long boxes. I think oh, that was you one saw that, that I saw one recently. Yeah, yeah. was that was that you, or did someone kind of coax you into doing that? That was uh, a silly thing. My my employee uh, Nick, who who's a real clown says let's let's be really silly here and I, and he said I want you to pose like a supermodel and and I and I was at the time I was kind of overtired I hadn't I hadn't been sleeping well and we had just loaded up a big truck and I I went along with it usually I'm really careful about not looking foolish uh, but I I thought that that was a lot of fun actually lying on on a on a bed of long boxes yeah, I made it for a great photo <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so thanks. yeah, I mean the travel piece—that's a huge component of this. So that—that's why I was really excited to come back here and to be able to do these four episodes with you because there was a lot that we touched on the first time around. But now, having four episodes, we can really take our time and unpack some of those moments and, and get a little bit deeper. So I think this will be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Before we really dive in, I have to congratulate you on 25 years of Zap Comics. Oh, thank you. Uh, I I'm pretty. I don't really pat myself on the back much, but but I'm pretty proud of myself that I made it 25 years. And where the store right now is is in really on really strong footing right now. We're in great shape. The strong's healthy, in spite of as you probably know, you know, sales on new comics are challenging right now. Um, a challenge right now, especially with Marvel in particular. So the fact that we're in pretty strong uh, footing. I really give my back issue buying almost all the credit for that because be, besides trying to have a tight rein on the whole business, um, the the back issue market has been really strong. And in spite of the new the weakness in new comic sales, back issues are great. So that's allowed me to really thrive. And uh, I'll tell you the truth, I'm I feel very lucky that I've been able to do this for a living for 25 years. I've I've been able to feed my family and have a house and all that good stuff doing something that's generally pretty fun. Yeah, that's the thing. I Something that I was struck by, and I think listeners too, going back to the response to the first episode, you know, in, in talking to all the retailers as I did last season, you know, you hear a lot of the struggles and the challenges. And obviously we touched on that in our episode as well. But what I heard and what I think listeners heard, you know, you've been able to do this and achieve a certain degree of success that you, you don't often see at a comic shop. You don't hear about it at least. So it, I mean, it's very encouraging. It's terrific. Yeah, I think it's definitely possible. I think that, you know, j- just like almost every small business, whether it's a restaurant, um, clothing store, whatever it is, most small businesses, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know the exact failure rate. It's pretty high. And so, but it's definitely possible. I, I know, you know, quite a few comic book sellers that are, make a good living at this and, and are doing fine. But obviously, the, the majority aren't. And that's both, it's just a, the nature of small business. And it's a nature of, you know, they're often run by fanboys. Um, you know, they're maybe really passionate about comics, but not passionate about, you know, selling them or buying and selling them. So, yeah, the, the, fa- the fact I made it, um, 
I'm like really relieved. <laughs> I'll be honest. It's uh, it's good. It's no small feat. You know, again, alternate realities tapped out at 23 years. We were so close. So oh, close was to that, that 25-year mark. Yep. Oh, was that his, uh, it was 23 years, huh? The Steve? store closed, uh, I think, uh, exactly a week or two weeks after the 23rd anniversary. So wow. what a way to go. <laughs> what, what a way to, to, to go off into the sunset. That's funny. Yeah. So, all right. Well, so again, with these episodes, we're going to go beyond the comic shop. So I want to go back to your secret origin as a fan and then as as a buyer and seller of collections. And like I said, we got into, I think, some of the highlights the last time around, but I kind of want to just go through it again and, you know, maybe go a little bit deeper, have some follow-up questions. I re-listened to our first episode uh, in preparation of this. And there are a couple of things I'm like, oh, I got to ask him about that this time. Sure. So I know you mentioned that you were seven years old. You went with your dad to work. Right. What did he do? Uh, my father was, uh, he was an, an, an engineer. He worked on, um, his main career was working for a rocket uh, engine. Uh, it, it was a defense contractor, and, and he was pretty high-level engineering stuff, and he also taught engineering. Uh, then he went, um, he left that to... This is this is pretty weird. He wanted to go into business for himself, uh, and he was he was very intelligent. My my father he was really smart, but um, he decided to go into business for himself. So they designed a new kind of submarine, and and they were gonna um, design this new type of su- submersible equipment to go really deep ocean diving. There, and I actually have the stock offering papers. I saved it as a memento. So anyway, he went into business for himself. It didn't work out. It was they. You know, they had invested the whole thing, and it was a great idea. It just wasn't viable at that time. So then he went to, um, I mentioned that most of my family has owned their own businesses. Mm-hmm. And so he went to work for my father, well, his father-in-law, my grandfather, had a company in Patterson uh, designing all kind of electronic components. So he was the vice president there and so forth. So I would, I, I was there all the time. It was this huge facility in Patterson and all these machines making wires and I would work there a lot too just folding wires and counting all types of little fasteners and electronic wires so anyway one of those days where I went to the this facility with my you know my grandfather was there my grandmother worked there my father was there I we went to the smoke shop Bernie smoke shop afterwards and that w- that was the beginning. So the deal was right. If you were be- if you behaved, you would you would get some comics. At- were you a troublemaker? Why did they have to strike this deal with you? I was uh, I was not a bad child, but I could be a real pain in the ass, and you know had a lot of energy, and uh, you know I I was the class clown in school. Were you? It, it's probably hard to believe because when, when I'm on these podcasts, I'm careful about what I say. <laughs> I'm I'm really trying very hard to be very professional, but I could be a, a real nut. Um, so. I would not have pegged you for a class clown. I was voted for senior year of Fairland High School class clown and most artistic, which is my kind of lame claim to fame. But I was, yeah, I I had tons of, I was just, I I wouldn't say hyper really, but just, you know, kind of crazy and wild. And um, my my original uh, goal was was to draw comic books. Right. I went to art school briefly. And I, I, in fact, in my high school yearbook, it says, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I wrote penciling for Marvel. That was my my goal, which I'm doing something related to that. Yeah, not too far (coughs) off. I mean, you're in the the industry on a different side of it, but nevertheless. Mm -hmm. So... So you had this deal. So you behaved. You got to go to Bernie's Smoke Shop. Right. Right. So this is an era before the proliferation of specialty comic book stores, right? Correct. 
and Bernie Smoke Shop. You, it's funny, in listening to the episode, there were a number of points when you were talking about your history as a fan and as a collector that you describe moments as magical. Yeah. It came up a few times, and I think that was one of them, where you went into the smoke shop, you talked about how the smell, that tobacco smell, oh, yeah. still does something for you. Definitely. <laughs> I, I, the, there's two, two uh, sensory uh, things. Uh, well, the, the pipe tobacco smell and the sound of a creaking wire spinner rack. That sound, I still love that sound. In fact, we actually... We have in the store right now some the other day some random guy i think he's like a junk picker i don't know he had a spinner rack and he came in and at first i didn't want it because i actually which we could talk about later i actually have like 10 spinner racks in in my warehouse because i had bought out a store in long island and we'll go into that later but um this guy randomly comes in and i didn't even really want it uh you know they, they usually go for a couple hundred bucks those spinner racks and they're really cool so um i think i gave him 80 bucks for it and um I still like that sound, that creak, you know. Yeah. I love that sound. It's just cool. Yeah, know? it takes you back, right? Of course. And that tobacco smell as well. Oh, yeah. Did, and you, did you ever partake or you just enjoyed the smell? No, you know, it's funny. My, uh, I absolutely abhor cigarette smoke. Uh, I like the smell of pipe tobacco. I never smoked a pipe. It just it, it didn't appeal to me. But um, I absolutely hate the smell of cigarette smoke. And, and my family growing up, my my whole family smoked, and it was like a war in my house because I hated it, and now I hate it even more. But um, there there is something about that smell I like. So you go to Bernie's Smoke Shop. Uh, do you remember anything about the, the, the people there who were working there? Bernie Smoke, yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't know if it's Bernie himself or his uh, his workers. I don't I, I don't think it was Bernie, but what he, he had this... Now I'm trying to figure out if it would have been Bernie's mother or grandmother. Because when you're seven, anyone who's like over the age of 40 is old, right? So there was this old lady. She was really, really nasty. Just like, you know, like, this ain't a library kid. You know, that's stereotypical. There was a lady there, and I remember going to the back. And at Bernie's, they weren't on spinner racks, actually. They were on um, kind of those waterfall shelves, I sure. should call them. And I remember looking, and they didn't have a, they had a terrible selection, actually. They only had like 10 different comics, but I picked out, I mentioned in our last podcast, those two Superman comics, which, right. which I were, in hindsight, are horrible. In fact, I, I reread them recently. I was going through a collection, and I came across them again, and I read them, and I'm like, this is terrible. But I bought those two, brought them home, and boom, I was hooked. And then the following week, went to work again. And the next two I got was an amazing Spider-Man annual with a Hulk in Canada, which I liked a lot. I, I said, this is great. And then there was a Prince and the Pauper, uh, Marvel Classics comics. Liked those a lot. Then I found out a place called Jan's Lollipop. I don't, I don't know if I told you about that. You mentioned a candy store. I don't think you gave the name last time. Okay, the candy store was Jan's Lollipop, and it was right near where my grandmother lived. So when I would go to my grandmother's house, I could just ride my bike there. That was a good one because they, they had the spinning racks. They and had more a, of a selection? Huge selection. And the guy, this guy, Jan, he was uh, like a, a Holocaust survivor, super nice guy. And it was one of those luncheonettes where there was a counter with stools and people would eat and then candy. And so I was hooked on that. Jan's what, what was my preferred venue for a while. And I'll tell you a funny and interesting thing, which I like, like the continuity of life a bit. Um, about you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, this a kid, he's probably about 10 years old, started shopping in my store, you know, buying a couple new comics and nice kid. And, you know, then I met his parents 
And his father looked a little familiar to me. His father was older than me. He looked familiar. And yeah, I didn't think of it. And then one day, the kid comes in with his grandfather. And I'm looking at the grandfather. Now, now this is a kid who's my customer, my comic customer. He's like 10 years old. I'm looking at his grandfather. And it's Jan. Wow. So I look at him, and I knew it was him. Uh, I'm pretty good with faces. And he also had this interesting from being, he was in a concentration camp, and he, and he had these... Um, it was a wound. He had these bumps on his head from getting, you know, beaten up. And I look at him. I see the bumps on his head. I know it's him. And I go up to him. I go, are you Jan? And and he even, he always had an accent. He was from like Hungary or something. He goes, and he gives me a funny look. He goes, yes, why? I go, you were my store to buy comic books from. And I'm looking at him and I, I like these kind of moments. I go, and now your grandson's buying comic books from me. It was awesome. And, and you know, he, he got a kick out of it. And then I, I became very friendly with the son. And, and then I realized how I recognized the father. The father, he was, when I was shopping at Jan's, the father was like some 20-year-old. You know, he, he would always want me to buy Archie's. I, I, don't, I, I don't really like Archie's. I want superheroes. But so I recognized the father now as a 40-year-old man with a son. And I'm like, wow, I know this guy. I, and, and there you go. That, that, was, that was a good little interaction. Hmm. As payback, you should have made the 10-year-old buy Archie. <laughs> I love it. I, I really should have. You're right. Or maybe he likes Archie. I, you know, whatever, he, whatever he doesn't like, that's what you should have uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> recommended. Yeah. I should have forced him to buy like Faust and Lady Death or something. <laughs> <laughs> that really, as far, yeah, as far as just the continuity of life, people coming in and out, that cast of, of characters over a lifetime, that is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So Jan's more, much more wholesome than Bernie's smoke shop, it seems. Yeah, Jan's was just a much, just a pleasant place to go. He was very nice. He, he, he had a good way with kids. You know, he was just a sweet old man. And again, I'm saying old. When I was seven, I don't know, he may have been only 50, but to me he was old. And, he was, and they had such a selection there. And then I would buy a, a, a coffee cake, you know, like a Drake's coffee cake. And I would buy my comics and I was, I was, I was a happy camper. That's, you know, that's not a bad routine to have. Yep. I always love hearing about stuff like that. With This is more a little bit of a tangent, but it was something that I, I did want to get to. And you mentioned having a 10-year-old customer. And I'm curious because I know, again, these back issues and especially the, the higher end stuff, it's a big part of your business here and what you do. In terms of the people who, you know, the, the clientele for that, are you finding it's mostly older people? Like, are there any any younger people or kids even who are into that kind of stuff? There is a very small uh, group of younger, say like age 10 to 12. There's a very, I would say, if I had to put a percentage, like 5%, right. you know, and you do see, what I see a lot of, unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's working out. You see a lot of fathers trying to get their kids into it. Like, you know, we're going to start collecting Flash together. And, you know, because fathers, especially these days, they want something to bond with their kids over, some shared hobby, and the fathers are into it, but... Honestly, um, I don't see it being, uh, you know, I don't see a huge amount of that, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily expect that, but I was just curious. Um, and that's something, I, you know, we can get into more later about, you know, who exactly is is buying this stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, so you had Jan's. But just jumping back to Bernie's for a second, I know there wasn't much to choose from, so maybe there's not <laughs> too much to this. But anything in particular about those Superman issues that, that called to you? Like, why why that over the few others that were there? That's a good question. I think um, the only thing I would say is that the one Superman had Titano, who's a giant gorilla, right? And I loved King Kong. And I would watch, like, every, even from, like, when I was very little, 
every Thanksgiving, I don't know if when you were little they did this, every Thanksgiving on Channel 11, they played all the King Kong movies. Okay. And that was a great memory. So seeing a giant gorilla on the cover, I'm sure appealed to me. And besides that, in all honesty, there was just such a, like a sparse collection, you know, it was slim pickings. This was the 70s, right? So was Superman the movie already out at this point? Yeah, this was... um, I bought my first comic books in 1977. I think the movie actually hadn't come out yet. I think the movie was 78, which I did see in the movie theater, and I thought it was it was excellent. I was like totally blown away by it. So I don't. So the point is, I don't think I I picked them out because of a movie. I think it might be before the movie. Gotcha. <clears throat> Speaking of the movie, they recently put out the uh, extended television cut, the three-hour cut of the movie that originally aired uh, on television over two nights. Oh, nice. I have not watched it yet. I've been saving it. It's the first time. I mean, new footage. It's amazing. Or new, w- new to me. I would like to see that. I I thought they were, for, for that time period, they were very well done. Yes. You know, Superman 1 and 2. Superman 3 and 4 were, from what I remember, pretty heinous. Yeah, those were a little rough. Yeah. <laughs> so from Bernie's to Jan's, and then... In 1979, you lost interest. You found a new hobby. Yeah. Well, in 1979, um, I'm laughing because it's very odd. I really got heavily into fishing. Yeah. So, you know, again, like I said, we touched on this last time, but I feel like there's more, there's more to this. It's like, why, uh, not, not like there's anything wrong with fishing, but why, why that? And then why, you know, why couldn't you do both? Why was it that comics took a backseat? You know, it's, I can't explain why I stopped reading them. I, I have I don't even know why I stopped reading them because it wasn't really that I didn't have the money because I would always just, you know, it wasn't a, an expensive hobby and I'd always scrape together money somehow and I can't explain it. I, it, it could be, I, the only thing I could think of is that I tend to get obsessed with things. If I get into a hobby, I go like full bore, like obsessed with it. So I have a feeling with the fishing, I just got so into that, I shut everything else out. Like I only wanted to do fishing. And um, we had moved that year. We had moved to a new house that was right on a river. And it's, you know, we're talking North Jersey, so it was pretty polluted. But there was tons, there was, I I was able to fish in my backyard every day. Just walk in my backyard and fish and catch uh, eels and carp and catfish and largemouth bass. And that was really enjoyable for me. And, um, but it is very strange that I completely dropped comic books for like three years. I, I can't explain it. Well, that happens sometimes. And, you know, I did a whole season of this podcast about uh, collecting and collecting behavior. And I know from my own experience and from people I've spoken to, it's difficult to sustain a high level of interest over a lifetime. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I don't think it's unnatural to kind of see some ebbs and flows. Yeah, it makes as, sense. As far as that laser focus of yours, I mean, I think that's what, would you say that's what drives what you do now as far as tracking down all these collections and everything? I mean, that's, yeah, you know, that, that focus. Yeah, I'm definitely very focused on uh, the and and you kind of have to whatever kind of of a career you're going to have, you're going to do better on it if you if you don't mind focusing on it in a really you know um, I don't know if diligence is the right word wrong word but um, that's definitely served me well with this because you know like, like I said just one of many collections I bought in the past two weeks that 130 boxes if I viewed that as just tedium it would my my life would be very unpleasant because it's a lot of work. You're processing and you're looking at them and you're figuring out, well, these I'm going to dump in the 50 cent bins. These I'm going to dump to that guy. These I got to make show books, you know, because I do all these conventions. These I'm going to put into the $2 box. And if I didn't like it, it, w- it would be miserable. 
Yeah, I mean, that was something that I wanted to ask you is, you know, how do you stay energized to try, you know, again, to track down these collections? And in certain cases, you know, you're, you know, you're traveling great distances for these, you know, you're going through, again, potentially, you know, dozens or a hundred long boxes. I mean, that's a lot. And I imagine you see a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, something funny about when you own your own business, you know, people always... Like I said, people that are not in the comic world are pretty fascinated with it because it's something kind of off the beaten path and it's this weird little subculture. And also owning your own business always fascinates people. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people think about it and they don't want to jump ship and for probably good reason. It's very difficult. But I always say, well, I want to be my my own boss, right? And, you know, I I absorbed that from my family members. So it, it wasn't too intimidating. But I'll be honest with you, my number one driver, this this is something I don't really talk about much, but my number one driver behind me staying hungry, you know, and uh, keeping the business running is I have a major fear of failure and I have a major fear of having to go work for someone and, and having to go on a job interview. And it's almost that fear because there there are times, especially now, you know, I'm, I'm 47 now, there there's times... Sometimes I don't want to, you know, I'd lose some of my, my uh, vim and vigor, as they say, and I'd lose some of that drive. But all I do, I just train my mind. I, I get that little worm of fear. Well, wait a minute, you know, if things start going bad and then I have to fold up shop and all that stress and have financial problems, and then, then I have to go knocking on doors and go on job interviews and kind of learn to network and be a phony and... That sounds horrible. So I say, no matter how much I'm not in the mood now to like work like 18 hours straight, that little worm of fear gets me out of bed like real fast. It's very interesting. I I can identify with that, and that's something that uh, was actually in one of the Rocky movies. But <laughs> this idea of, you know, you you try hard. <laughs> big Rocky fan, but you you try harder when you're scared. And so I think oh, yeah. you know if fear paralyzes you, then that's an issue. But fear can be a, a healthy motivator in the right dosage, I think. You know what? That's that's exactly how, how I view it is they do a lot of studies on what makes some kids more successful in life and not financially, just more re- re- resilient, more self-confident, um, happier. And they they really are trying to figure this out. And one thing they found is kids, and, and, and I blame my generation of parents for this, kids that are too coddled and too uh, are protected are actually not as happy. They have higher levels of depression. They're not. They don't achieve as much. They're they're um, they're more intimidated by things. They're more thrown off. But you don't want too much adversity. You want just the right dose. Like you said, that's exactly right. And and I really believe in this with my own kids. You want them to fall down and get hurt. You want them to experience lo- uh, losing and failure. But you don't want too much. You don't want abused kids, right? You don't want it to go too far. So it's it's this kind of gray area. Well, how much is enough to make them strong and resilient? but not to be scarred for life and, and mentally tortured because they had this horrible home life, right? And I really believe that to succeed in business, um, it's kind of the same kind of thing. Like one of the reasons that I've been able to survive is I had those difficult periods. I needed that those bad times to now, you know, learn from and, and be, you know, and, you know, and survive. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Amazing. So, all right. So we lost you to fishing for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was sad. <laughs> but, 
But uh, oh, and not only did you did you stop reading, but you sold the collection that you had amassed at that point, which you said was about a couple hundred books. Yeah, it was a couple hundred. It all fit in one kind of plastic, um, like bin. Yeah, like a bin. I don't I don't know what you would call it. Then this is 1977. They didn't have those big Rubbermaid things. I don't know what it was. That was 1979. I got f- uh, $14. At a flea market, right? At a flea market. There was a flea market in Elmwood Park, New Jersey, and where they would sell you knives and Chinese throwing stars. Like, I I used to buy Chinese throwing stars. Why? I can't explain why I wanted Chinese throwing stars, but I would throw them at a, at a wall, and it was just dumb. But uh, anyway, so I went there, sold them, walked next door. I sold them to the comic book guy, 14 bucks. Was went, that a good price? Given well, what you had? No, no. I Now, to be fair, I don't think at that point I I even had the mentality to take good care of them. I just loved reading comics, so they, were, they probably were not in great condition. But 14 bucks for a couple hundred books, he, he paid me seven cents a comic. That was that was pretty lame. Um, I don't think I had too many real gems in there because at that point, what was I reading? Mostly D, more DC. Well, I read both Marvel and DC, but more at that point, more DC. But then I became a Marvel guy. And then, um, you know, I kind of dropped out. And then I went to camp in Maine. And that's where I got re-exposed to comics. And I got, boom, like hooked hard. And then I got obsessed with comics. Yeah. So what was it? So what, what type of camp was it? It was um, the uh, Acadian Institute of Oceanography. Because I was also obsessed with... Uh, and, and and I still am to a degree, like uh, biology. Right, and, and that was animals. a minor in college. Yeah, which was kind of weird. Um, but I was obsessed with animals, the environment, and I still have a lot of interest in that. And um, so I, I I had a choice of having, uh, you know, that year was my I I turned, well, how old was I in eighth grade? I hadn't turned thirteen, but I had uh, my my bar mitzvah, and I had a choice of going to camp like my you know my mother didn't have a lot of money she said well i can send you to the camp the oceanography camp where you could have a big party for your bar mitzvah or we could have a party at the house so instead i just had a party in my house and people snuck in alcohol and it, it went great but um that was uh and at camp i ran into a kid i, I can remember his name now glenn Kanzer, which is pretty funny i can remember that that name just popped into my head i haven't thought about him and he he was into comics couple other kids were and we would go into town in Bar Harbor, Maine and buy comic books and I was massively hooked. I'm like, yeah, baby. And then I got really into it. I got obsessed with it. You know, I have that obsessiveness and I, that, that was when I started reading all the newspaper ads, buying collections. Right. And, oh yeah. Yeah, so I mean that takes us to, you know, the start of this because I know you said, you know, around, you know, 14, 15, that's when you really started buying and selling these collections. And, yeah. you know, again, like I said, I want to get into this, unpack it a little bit, because I'm fascinated by your evolution from, you know, this teenager who's flipping collections to everything that you've built now. Yeah. So it's amazing. So, I mean, can you take me into that that initial decision to uh, to get into that in the first place? I'm trying to figure out when I first started buying. Okay, yeah, here we go. I was reading the new comic books. I got hooked again in Maine, like I said. And then, you know, I would go to the Jan's Lollipop. He was still around, and I would go, you know, I, I was always trying to find a new place to buy comic books. And I remember my next-door neighbor, um, she was like 17 or something, and she goes, you know, there's this store at the Bergen Mall. They sell comic books. And I'm like, wow. And, and there was no way for me to get there. It was on a highway. And I said, wow, well, what do you mean they sell comic books? Because I, 
it, it wasn't on my radar that there was a specialty comic shops. I, it sounded like, what? You know, only comic books? She goes, yeah, I'll buy you a couple comics. So she went there just to be nice. She bought me home. They were like Marvel Tales, which are kind of lame. But anyway, she bought me a couple of Marvel Tales. And I'm like, wow. So I, I, I begged my mother to, you know, buy me comic books. I did to bring me to this Bergen Mall. It was called Collector's Comics. It was in the downstairs of Bergen Mall, owned by this guy named Frank. Everyone knew Frank back then because there were so few stores. And I walk in there and I'm like, oh my God, this is it. This There's like old comics everywhere and there's new comics and every single new comic made he had. And I was like, oh wow, this is crazy. And also some of it also, you would read the ads in the comics and you see ads for old comics. And But I was really exposed to those old ones uh, at Frank's store. And then I just said, whoa, this is this is awesome. I'm just going to start buying as much as I can. So like up until that point, obviously you're reading these comics, you know what issue number they're up to, you know that others have come before. Was there any thought of, oh, like those are out there and I could get them? Or was that not something that really was triggered until you went to that store? That wasn't triggered until the store. There was always something in the back of my mind because um, if you remember, they don't do it as much anymore, but the Marvel comics, they would put a, an asterisk. Let's say they mention a story and as seen in number 194, right. you know. And so I'm like, wow, it's probably, it would probably be fun to buy 194, but how, how would I get that? You know, no way to get it. So now Frank's opened, opened the whole world up. And then I also started, um, it, besides just buying the collections, I started buying a lot for, by mail order. There was a guy named Robert Crestall in Canada. And he would print up this catalog, which I loved reading. And then I would mail in my money, mail in a money order. And then there was also a company called J&S Comics, who are still around there. They're in New Jersey. Big back issue operation, J&S Comics. And I'd mail them my money. And so I, I started buying mail order too. And then um, as far as when I really started buying collections, I can pinpoint when I said, hey, you know what? Instead of buying from these guys, I'm just going to buy a whole collection from people and then I'll get a really lot of them at one time. Right. So initially, like you were, it's like issues here, issues there. Right. Initially, I would just buy like from JNS Comics and you know Robert Crestall and um, and sometime around that there around that same time period, 1983-84, I started going to the Comic Cons in New York, and you know I, I would take a bus in from Fairlawn to New York. I, I had a couple of my other nerd buddies who were into comics, and it was very embarrassing then. We didn't tell anyone we, we collected comics. This is 1983. It was mortifying. But we, I found a couple other nerds who liked comics, and we, we would take a bus into New York for the Creation Comic Cons. And, um, and those were crazy. And there was all some conventions in Wayne and Paramus. I think back to it now, man, it was just piles. Like Sometimes a dealer would bring in like, you know, 12 and 15, 20 cent comics, just piles of them on his table, just like you'd be rooting through them like 50 cents. And I think, I think back to that, and I'm like, wow, that was fun. I mean, that was awesome. <laughs> so as The far, thrill of the yeah, hunt, right? It was, yeah, the thrill of the hunt, digging through stuff, yeah. But so at that point, in terms of the back issues you were buying, was there any thought to selling them? Or was it just, I'm, I want to build up my collection, I want to get these issues that are being referenced? I was kind of... Everything just happened naturally. It just happened. It just kind of flowed where I was started going to these comic conventions and buying them online. And I said, well, these guys are doing it. These guys are buying comics and reselling them. So 
I think that's, that looks fun. I think I'm, I'm going to do that. So when I was 15, that was when I started setting up at comic conventions. My, my mother would drive me in like the Oldsmobile and it was miserable. And I built a wall. It was made of plywood. It weighed probably like 80. It was horrible. It was like a plywood back display wall, the worst. And I'd have to strap it to the roof. Um, it was very rudimentary, but just something just kind of dawned in my head. I say, well, you know, I see these guys selling comics. That looks like a fun job, right? And uh, I'm doing this. And then I started scouring like Wanad Press and like all the newspaper classifieds. And and uh, that was that was fun. Like right now, I'm, I'm thinking about that feeling. That was a lot more fun than it is. Like now, I still enjoy it. It's better than, you know, just having a desk job. But I'll be honest, that was when it was the most fun. Just going to someone's, like, you know, knocking on their door and then they bring you. I, well, I mentioned it on the last podcast. They bring you to the shed around back. Yeah, let's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but let's let's expand on that a little bit. So. <laughs> I don't want to laugh. No. So how okay. did uh, so how did that one come about? Was that someone you found through an ad? Yeah, that one. Um, I don't remember if it was in the one ad press or the newspaper. I was checking everything, and I remember. Remember the guy was like rich. I think he was an alcoholic. He, you know, he looked rough around the edges. He smelled like smoke. So this was someone who took out an ad saying comics for sale? Exactly. This says, uh, you know, they would say the ad, because back then, it's so funny when, when you think about how rudimentary everything was. They would charge by the word. If you took a newspaper ad, it was, I don't know, 10 cents a word. So they'd say real short, 1,200 comic books, 500 OBO, meaning or best offer. And I remember calling him up. You know, just there's no email, no internet. no. So I remember calling him up, and he was in somewhere in Jersey. And, you know, my mother gave me a ride. And uh, it was at nighttime, because I, I, I guess it was a week. I don't know why I went at night instead of on the weekend. It doesn't matter. And I remember knocking on his door, and he's like, and, and he was a pretty gross person. And he says, yeah, they're, they're around back in the shed, come around back. And there was, like, no lights in the backyard. It, it was kind of creepy. But, you know, I, I knew my mother was in the car waiting for me in the streets. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't that worried about getting, you know, you know tie, tied up and raped or something. So we go in this shed. It was re- kind of gross, but he had an awesome comic collection. It was great. And he had them. This is one of the first ones. This is one of those just weird little little factoids. I love gummy bags. Now you say, what, is, what do you mean gummy bags? But the old comic bags the tape would kind of melt and get gummy. And whenever you buy a collection, almost every time that I buy a collection in those yellowed comic bags with gummy tape, they usually have beautiful paper and gloss. And whenever I buy a collection, and, and they usually haven't been touched in a long time, so they're usually in nice shape. And this guy was like my first gummy bag collection. And um, excellent collection. I, I, I forget exactly what he had. It doesn't matter now. But I remember, I, I think I paid him like... 450 bucks, which was a lot of money then. That was like all my money. Uh, so I think I guess I was 15 or 16. So 450 bucks like cleaned me out, but I got a lot of books for that, you know. And he had old stuff, you know, like 60s and some 70s. And um, I remember the gummy bags, and, and, and gummy bags are a pain. If you ever had a collection with gummy bags, they're a nightmare because they're messy and the glue is melting on your fingers. But the, uh, but the, the gloss on the comics is, ooh, baby. Huh, that's that is very interesting. And so, all right. So you had your mom in the car. You know, yeah. In terms of her and the rest of your family, like, what was their reaction to this enterprise of yours? My mother thought 
it was fine. Uh, you know, I, I was always either drawing or reading. I was a big reader, drawing. And she thought it was really cool. My mother always had an interest in like business, you know, because you know, her father was the one with the company right. in Patterson. She thought it was really cool that it was a business. Um, so she thought the fact that um, I would be making money, and, and she knew I loved comic books, she, she, she thought it was just really cool. You know, they're very supportive. And what about the, I mean, the danger aspect of all of this? Like when you said, hey, can you drive me to this guy's house at night and he's got a shed in back? Was she like, okay, like no problem? Or <laughs> I'm trying to think if, you know, she would probably just give me, my mother was, uh, my mother was the type who would just give, give you a look, like kind of, kind of roll her eyes, like what? Like, ugh, you know, but, but she would go along with it. I'd say, oh, just please, it's really good. And I think he has 1960s ones. So I think she... You see, back then in the 70s and 80s, you know, parents weren't quite as overprotective. And, you know, my mother would basically tell me, don't talk to strangers, never go in someone's house, never get into a car. But basically, you're, you're on your own. And from the age of about seven, I'd get on my bike and I'd be gone all day. And that, that was just the way it was. Right. And I knew not to talk to strangers, you know. And so there wasn't too much of a fear factor. Right. So, uh, so, that was a, so that, at that point, that was the biggest collection you had you bought? Probably. Um, there was another one around the same time period. I, I remember I had sh- we had had a winter uh, with a lot of snow, which made me happy because I shoveled snow like a maniac. Like whenever snow would come, I would be really happy, and I would just get up like five in the morning and just shovel like a nut and make a. You can make a lot of money shoveling snow. You yeah, know? I mean, and, it sounds like you really hustled as as a young man, and yeah. obviously you still do. But I mean, that that is very entrepreneurial. Yeah, I definitely, that was just the, the thing to do, that if you wanted money, you, you know, I would get, you know, sometimes you go to your grandma's, you know, my grandmother's house, and she would, you know, throw you five bucks. But in, in general, if you wanted money to buy, like, say, comics or, like, whatever, fishing lures, I, I had to earn it. And anyway, I remember there was a collection around the same time period. I found it in the Walnut Press. The guy's, um, he was a nice guy. He was, he, he was probably maybe, like, 20 years old. He had a nice collection. That was probably actually even better. He had like, I don't remember the exact number, but I paid him, I think, eleven or twelve hundred bucks, and that was an awesome collection. And again, that I regret not, you know, putting some away. Well, you know, I shouldn't say regret it, but that that collection now would probably be like a hundred thousand dollars, maybe even more, hundred fifty thousand. Wow, what kind of stuff was in that? It was definitely silver into bronze, but really nice stuff. And I remember he had multiples of things. It was just great collection. But so anyway, th- those were two big ones. And then I would always randomly just find little ones, like a box of comics for 20 bucks. And um, and then, you know, my mother opened an antique store, and she would occasionally get a lead for me. Not, not much. Mo- most people, it's funny, most people in the antiques business are just brutal to work with. Like they... It's really hard to, to, to buy from. They just tend to be really hard, hard to negotiate with. And they always price their stuff like triple what it's worth, and then they want to haggle down to half that, and you're still, you know, just ridiculous. But uh, my mother was, was an antiques dealer for many years, and she, um, she had the same kind of like, you know, uh, yen for the stuff where you're buying collections. She, she would go, like, a lot of times I would go on calls with her. Like, she would need help carrying stuff, so we'd go to this house and I'd have to load up the boxes and give her a hand with that. And that was actually fun. Yeah. Were there any things that you observed and learned uh, from those trips that you applied to your own and your own enterprise later? Uh, Some, I think, 
I think my mother was a little too soft. Like she, she wasn't that hard nosed. Uh, but I definitely noticed my mother would get a lot of stuff just cause, cause people really liked her and they knew that she was going to be fair. They, they knew she had to make a profit, but she also wasn't like a real, you know, real conniver and a swindler. A, a lot of, in every business, I guess, you know, some people are always, they're always out to get you, you know, they, they, they have to win. In other words, they have to win. They have to feel that they won. So I probably picked up from my mother that, that aspect of my personality where, listen, I just want to give you the straight story. I, I don't enjoy this, like, you know, having to have this devious uh, master plan, this master sales strategy here. And just, you know, people usually, not everyone, occasionally I just bump, I bump heads with some people, but people usually like how I come across. I'm, I'm pretty direct. I tell like it is. I don't, I don't come across like a used car salesman. Yeah, no, and, you know, we talked about that last time as far as your strategy and how you represent yourself and deal with people. And yeah, it sounds like, you know, through those experiences with your mom that maybe that was a lesson in the importance of building a good reputation for being fair and honest. I think so. Yeah, I, I would I, I would agree with that. Other than shoveling snow, um, any other odd jobs during those high school years? Well, my when I turned 15... I started working at, at a Haagen-Dazs ice cream store, and I, I worked there crazy. I always w- wanted more and more hours. Um, I worked there probably about, even you know during high school, I worked there about 30 hours a week. And I, I was really, um, I saw, I learned a lot from that about, about how not to run a business because the owner of the business was an absentee owner, and he would have me, and I was 15, and I was reliable. But, you know, he gave me the key and the alarm code. I, I was responsible for everything at 15 years old, and which was fine. But I observed just a lot of things going wrong, and he didn't keep a tight rein on things. And I saw my, the other employees, some of them would really take advantage. So I learned a lot about that, actually. you got to keep a tight fist in your business. You just... Um, it's it's kind of human nature that you know while while the cat's away the mice will play and I I have a great staff here and you know for instance my staff down at my other store in Manalapan they kind of I'm not there too often and they they do a great job for me they're great but there's still things that go wrong where you you got to keep a tight fist I think so anyway though I worked in Hagen Oz for like four or five I worked through college even when I would be home from Rutgers um, so I earned money from that and most of that money went. It went into comics, but also, you know, once I got a girlfriend, I, I used to, you know, spend a lot on the girlfriend. Um, but yeah, and so as far as odd jobs, the shoveling, and I, I'd always, and also I worked for my grandfather at the factory. You know, we would, oh, geez, we would fold these wire harnesses, and like we, we got paid a penny per wire harness, because they had to be folded a certain way to get transported. And I'd be sitting there for like hours just folding wires, harnesses. But, um, you know, it worked. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that work ethic is something that's, you know, been there and, you know, you really cultivated. And it sounds like it runs in the family as well. Yeah. With, with the ice cream shop in particular, <laughs> side note, but I'm always kind of fascinated by that business in particular because, again, especially like where, where we are, obviously you're dealing with winters and I would have to imagine things slow oh, yeah. considerably. How do you weather that? Well... That that was something. Even as a kid, I, I was a teenager. I wasn't, you know, I I wasn't versed in business really. But you know, it's just common sense. You could see that in the winter, they would do like a say a hundred twenty five dollars in sales for a whole day because because people are really not buying ice cream generally in the winter, 
and you could see that they were losing money. It, it was very right, obvious. Because like your rent's the same, so I mean, maybe you're ordering less ice cream ingredients, but you're you know you still have right. those, those other costs. You have those fixed costs, right? And and I'll tell you that was a really I learned a lot from working in Hagenas because I, I would actually you know he would show me when he was ordering the supplies, ordering you know the different ice creams, the milk. Um, um, he would show me, uh, you know, he would have a guy that would clean the windows and I would see what he paid him. I, that was actually, you know what, I haven't thought about that in a while, that hog job, but in hindsight, that was, that was very valuable to me because, um, you realize he had to make all the money in the summer. So he had to be super duper busy, which he was, he was busy. You know, they would do like say $3,000 on a Saturday in the summer, which is in the eighties. That was, that was a lot of money. But then I remember I would always... I kind of think to myself in the winter, like, wow, he's losing so much money here because he's paying me, you know, like, oh, it was a minimum wage. I, I remember I remember when I, I got a raise from three and a quarter to 340. That was like, yeah, now I've, I'm, I'm really killing it here, you know. But, you know, he had to pay me 30 or 30 bucks for the day, and then he had to pay for the lights beyond. And um, that's a bad, and I also learned, it's funny, in, in addition, I learned I never want to be in the food business because I saw so much waste. And so many things go wrong. You get a customer angry at you. They say there's a hair in the wet walnuts. And, right. And, <laughs> so I learned I will never, and I, I, you got to love the food business. Because, you know, on one hand, it looks like fun, like having a pub or like a bar or like a restaurant. It's really difficult. And I know someone, one of our customers, he manages a restaurant and they do very well. And I think he's about to buy it. I was talking to him about it. And he, he, he knows the business well and he actually likes it. So I think he'll do fine. But I saw so much waste at haagen It was terrible. Yeah. I guess whenever I've thought of, of a haagen or Carvel or something along those lines, I always wonder, like, is there not something else that they could make and sell during those winter months, like like hot dogs. I mean, I you know something like just something else. Absolutely, that that makes it makes total sense, right? Well, in the winter months, we'll sell hot stuff. Now at Hagenaz, we didn't do that very much. I guess it, they they were kind of constrained because it's a franchise. We we sold hot coffee. We sold a lot of coffee there, so we would sell that um, hot cocoa. Um, I don't know if I say cocoa or chocolate. That was weird. Anyway. <laughs> hot, <laughs> Anyway, but uh, you're absolutely right. To me, it seems like, like I have a, one of my good friends, he opened a few of those frozen yogurt stores. You know those stores where you pour your own frozen yogurt and they weigh it? it, it oh, sure. yeah. Oh, yeah, like a 16 handle? That's it, right. Yep. So he, he, he got into that. He opened three of them. And it was the same, it was a similar kind of thing where in the summer, really busy. And then the winter, you just lo- you're, you're bleeding money, you're hemorrhaging. And he was even trying to figure out what he could sell in the winter, and it, he did, he just finally got rid of them. But it's interesting hearing this from you because I think you you know you see the building blocks of you know what would become Zap Comics, and I know that we talked a lot in the in the previous episode about the importance of uh, product diversification, right? Because things yeah. are going to change, and you can't rely too heavily on any one thing because again, things can turn. Yeah, and you need to have other you know other things to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting to get that to get that background. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes. Uh, I probably it's it, it just funny how life is because I probably sub I, I, a lot of life is your subconscious, right? You're like picking up things and you forget you even learn them, but then it sticks with you. And I probably a lot of those times at Hagen Dazs, it probably sticks with me now when like things bother me, if things are a mess or I see things are slow, and I'm like, oh, we gotta 
like you know I, the store um overall we're in good shape but the store is definitely slower than it was say two years ago so now i'm like in my mind I'm like well we're gonna list some more stuff on ebay and i'm gonna do a wholesale deal in fact when we're done here i got a i'm doing a, a deal with a guy and i'm gonna flip some books wholesale to someone and bring in money that way so it's always on my mind that I when it, when it's slow, I start getting like really, I, I don't panic at all, but I start that motivates me. Right. Yeah. So get back into the collection buying. So for example, that shed shed collection. Yeah. At that point, was that something you were buying again for your own collection, or that was bought to to flip? Okay. Like at what point did that transition happen, where it wasn't just I'm buying books because I want to enhance my collection, but that this is actually a business opportunity and you want to make some money. I think when I had when I started to really, you know, buy like the shed collection, we'll call that, and other collections. I think at that point I was definitely right on the verge of okay, I'm gonna start selling these, where I'm gonna go through this collection, I'm gonna keep some for myself. Um, so I don't think I had started yet, but I, it was on my mind that yeah, I'm gonna start setting up at that comic show, the the Fred Greenberg uh, comic show in Wayne and Paramus, and. Um, so, in other words, yeah, I, I bought them with the intent of selling them, and I hadn't done it yet. So, and, and even then, I was um, putting some away for myself, but I was building up this stock now. Right. Yeah, which was good. Did you have any specific goals at that point? Was it like, I want to make enough money to buy a car? Or, I mean, was, it, was there anything like that, any specific benchmarks that you were looking to hit or, or not at that hmm. point? I didn't have any type of benchmark where, okay, well, I want to, you know... Uh, build this up so I could, you know, like you said, buy a car or buy my Amazing Fantasy 15 or something. No, I really, the real goal was to start selling comics because that looked like a cool livelihood. I also needed to make money just for my fun, you know, you know, kid, you want to go out and buy stuff with your friends and buy gum and crap like that. So I also always wanted to have money. But also, oh, here's another thing. See, see, you're like dredging up all these memories. My, my family, we also... Uh, we didn't trade stocks a lot, but we got into occasionally buying stocks. Um, occasionally like uh, Pan Am, who are you know, long gone, Pan Am, but that was an airline. And occasionally we would, as a family, you know, we, I, we would either get a stock tip or we would just decide to buy a stock. And I wanted to have money to buy a stock. I wanted to have a couple hundred bucks so I could buy. I, I can picture Pan Am perfectly. We bought it at three, sold it at nine. It was like, wowie. So I remember I bought like 100 shares of that. And it worked out great. So in the back of my mind, I wanted to start selling comics and actually have a business. But also, I wanted to have like a bankroll. Yeah. And, and again, I didn't, um, I didn't really articulate it in that way that, okay, I'm going to build a bankroll. But in my mind, that was my subconscious talking. I, I want to have a chunk of money to work with. And then I could when because sometimes I didn't have money and it bothered me because I wanted to buy like whatever. There was another stock called Calamp, and we bought it at ten. It went to seventeen. But I remember I didn't have enough money for it, and I I forget what happened. I think I had to borrow money from from my brother, and that was a that annoyed me. So the point is, I always wanted to have a bankroll, but I I didn't even know what the word bankroll was. I just knew I wanted to have money so I could buy stuff. Right. You know. So the so the, so I wasn't particularly saving up for like a house or a car or anything. It was just having a bankroll was important because right. I I just I I intuitively knew and even to this day like there's times where we get you know we're strong right now thank God but 
there's times we get a little tighter on money and it bothers me because you always want to have that bankroll for an opportunity. You got to be, 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 have dry powder. You know, they call it dry powder. You got to have it. Even just among your, like your group of friends, whether it's the other ones who shared your interest in comics or just other friends generally, I mean, were, were other people out there hustling like this or, or were you kind of in your own category? Well, like, this goes beyond, again, like just having a part-time job after school. I mean, this was really another level. Yeah, I would say most kids weren't into buying and selling stuff. Although, as far as like the shoveling snow, one of my best friends who's still, you know, I don't see him as much anymore, still my best friend. You know, we, I've been friends with him for, you know, 35 years now. He, he and I were shoveling partners. We would, we would go out there and shovel, and, and it was actually kind of fun. You know, we would just, you know, work our tails off and make some money. And then we'd go back to his house and like, you know, have hot, well, hot cocoa. Hot, hot cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I don't think, um, I, you know what it is too, there could have been other kids that were doing it, but they weren't friends of mine. I know my group of friends that I hung around with it throughout high school, they would kind of make fun of my buying. And, and, and uh, you know, guys like, like to break balls. And, and I remember um, they would just kind of put it down just because that's what guys do. You know, they, they make fun of each other. But they, they they all worked. We we were uh, back then. Everyone worked. Everyone had part time job. We we all you know we didn't have parents that were just gonna like you know throw us money. So we all worked. But I was probably I think the only one who started the business. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think I'm the only one who who made his own business. Right. Yeah. At this point, again in these in these teen years, you're you know flipping collections. Um, you were working these shows. Yeah. Right. So again, you mentioned the Fred Greenberg ones, and the creation cons. So it's interesting because it's it's very timely because this season of my comic shop history is focused on comic book conventions and the different players who are part of that world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would love to just get a little bit of a sense from you about what those shows were like, because they're, you know, we're in an age now where there are so many comic conventions and, and a lot of them. It seems like comics have taken a bit of a backseat to more of the pop culture Hollywood stuff. I mean, what were these early shows like that you went to? Okay. Um, the early shows were really pure, just buying and selling comic books. There was, there was usually um, maybe one artist, like like for instance Joe Sinat, Sinat, you know the anchor, the sure. anchor, uh, like, like like he would be set up there. So usually you'd have maybe one or two artists who would sign your stuff for free, and they would just and just it was very casual. But, you know, the whole room was just people selling. It was almost, I would say, 100% comic books, almost no other merchandise. So it was really heavenly. I mean, for, for if you're into back issues and if you're into comics, it was just, uh, it was usually a small ballroom at a hotel. Um, the Fred Greenberg ones were always at, like, the Red Carpet Inn or the Holiday Inn, you know, and it was just in a ballroom. It would probably be about 25, 30 dealers. Everyone pretty much knew each other, although at, at every show there's the one or two new guys and all the other dealers before it starts like vultures they they pounce on their prey like like a bunch of hyenas and they just buy all the stuff that the guy made a mistake on and of course that that guy was me the first couple of times of course but everyone there were there was a pretty pretty much there was a nice uh, camaraderie at the shows most of the dealers got along there's always one or two guys that just were you know just just didn't really uh did their own thing but the shows were small. They were pure buying and selling comics. You're there to buy and sell comics. Um, and there was there was no one dressed up. I can't remember anyone ever doing any, any cosplay. It was actually a lot of fun. Like the guy that I really, 
I think I talked about this in the original podcast, the guy that I always kind of, in my mind, I, I am, I, well, in hindsight, I mean, now I know it, it was, it, it was not the right role model, but there was a guy who owned Steve's Comic Relief, super nice guy, great personality. He had this big shock of white hair and he had seven stores and he had his own bags and it had the seven, the addresses of all seven stores. I said, wow, I said, and then he would set up at the shows too. And he would sell that. That's where I always got my supplies from my long boxes. And he was a nice guy. And I said, wow, I mean, this guy has seven stores. This is sick. And I, I would do the math. I was pretty good at math. I'm like, well, you know, even if he makes just each store gives him 20,000 in profit, which wasn't unreasonable. This guy's making 140 grand and he has comic stores. I said, I said, wow, if I could be Steve's comic relief, I would be, you know, in heaven. Because basically my goal at that point was I, I really wanted to draw comic books, but um, I definitely decided not that I, I wasn't good enough or sell comic books. I thought that was like the coolest thing. Now, in hindsight, you know, Steve's was, he, he's a really nice guy, I, but Steve's was kind of maybe not managed well. And, you know, I think he lost all his stores. You know, they went, they went belly up and he had to sell them off or I, I don't even know the ownership structure because there's still a Steve's comic relief. There's a few exist like two or three. And I think other people own them. But, um, so those, those shows were a really good way. I, I learned a lot about how to, how to be a dealer at those shows. I, I want to jump back to that in a second, but do you miss, do you miss that style of show? Cause I know you still go to a lot of comic conventions. Do you have a preference? Oh God. My, my favorite shows to do right now, just cause they're, fairly low stress and they're just pure almost not pure but almost pure comic shows are like the john paul show in clifton new jersey i love that show i know almost everyone there everyone gets along and it's really almost all like that 1980 style old school comic show and then there's a show i do in uh schnecksville pennsylvania i just did it last weekend similar to clifton you go there, everyone's friendly, mostly just back issue buyers. And, you know, they had a costume contest, which is cool, which I, I actually like that stuff too. It, it, it's actually a lot of fun. It's you a know? fascinating world, the, the whole cosplay side of it. It is. And it's it's so big now. Uh, and, and some of the costumes are amazing. Um, so I definitely, if I could have my uh, druthers or whatever the term is, I, I, I prefer those old school shows. That, that is what, what I like. I like back issues and I like just digging in boxes and guys coming up and just making a pile of $3 books and talking about how they love Bronze Age. And I love it. As far as the educational aspect of those shows. So yes, what were the lessons that you took away about being a dealer from those experiences? Oh yeah. Well, one thing I learned, I learned there was certain, there's certain types of dealers. Um, and some of them are going to do everything right. Uh, when I say everything right, they're just going to put on a nice display. They're going to be friendly and personable. Uh, they're not going to play these, these games with people. Um, and then there was other dealers that were really shady, really shifty. And there wasn't a lot of those, but there was some there. So you got to learn, well, I'm going to have my guard up around this guy. This guy's shady. Um, I really learned the guys that are shady, I learned not to even try to win with them or try to like do any business with them, which I've kind of stuck to that throughout my life. Once you know how a certain person, how how their mindset is and how their approach to things are, 
you want to not engage. I that, that has actually served me pretty well, not not just in comics, but in life. Once you realize someone's just just trouble, it, it's in their nature. They're stuck in these habits. They're probably not going to change. I hate to say it. I don't engage with them, so I learned just to avoid certain people. Not even try to like make it work. Okay, let's make it work because usually it's just stress and aggravation, and it's not going to work. And I also learned that the guys that did the best were constantly running around trying to buy stuff. The guys that always had good material and new material, they weren't lazy. They were constantly on the prowl. They were looking at everyone's stuff. They were looking. And the guys that kind of won me over were, they were as straightforward with me as possible, meaning they, and they'd always spend some money with me and they wouldn't really squeeze me too hard. You know, everyone at a show, everyone likes to haggle a little bit. But um, I always just noticed that if you really want to do well in com- in back issues, at least, you have to constantly be on the prowl, getting fresh stuff, and always just turning over stuff and moving and moving and get fresh stuff. The guys that would be kind of sitting behind their table who had a messy setup and had the same stale books every show, they weren't doing well, and they were lazy. Or, you know, I, I hate to say lazier. They just, I don't know, they just uh, didn't even realize that they should be out there, like, you know, hustling. But that 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 stuck with me, that you always got to be constantly on the prowl. Yeah. And I know you buy very aggressively. Yeah. So it's it's funny because a lot of these things, they seem, I mean, they seem obvious or, or, or common sense, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you want to have a neat display. You want to have new product for people to look through. But I know it's not a lesson that always lands with people but it was great that you were able to make those observations and then put that into practice yeah. i mean how how successful were you at those shows were they were they good for you they i i was definitely a real a real rookie so what i did wrong at those shows was i would focus only on price meaning i was one one of the cheapest prices and just turn them over now the thing i did wrong there was um which i've eventually like and it's and i've it's taken me years and years to adapt out of that but i always want to just have a fair price not have a lot of haggling i I never enjoyed haggling i I would do it because i had to but i don't like it um so my main things i did wrong was i would sell stuff too cheap and i left too much money on the table so i would do i'll give you some numbers at a typical show like a fred greenberg i think the tables are about 35 or 40 bucks and I would usually do about $250 or $300. Sometimes if I had just, you know, I lucked out, I had a new collection, I would do like $500. So it was fine. It made a profit. But in hindsight, and I, as I learned over time, I was letting stuff go too, too cheap. Like I'd be selling stuff at a dollar that I really should have gotten the $2 for. I would sell something for $10 that I should have you know, gotten in 15 or $20 for. Because, you know, I, w- I would watch the dealers and that's how you learn. You watch the dealers buy it for me for 10 and I see it on his wall at 20. And I'm like, well, is that guy just overpriced or was I too cheap? I, I was too cheap a lot of times. Right. Did you find people weren't even haggling with you? Were they just like, okay, that's, that's I'll take it. <laughs> and and well, did that you make know, you think, oh, maybe I should have had it higher? Well, whenever someone... Uh, whenever you give a price, and, and, and it's on the buying side also, Let, let's say I make someone an offer, and they go, like, let's say, okay, um, I, da, 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 okay, it's about a 9-4, I'll give you $200, and they go, wow, 
that was way more than I wanted. <laughs> and then you, you get that little pit in your stomach. You're like, oh, whoops. But um, there, there was times where you realize that like, yeah, you know, you saw how, how they didn't haggle and they would take it and go away. Although I will say the, the thing that I can't stand to this day is when I, a lot of times I'll have stuff in the store where maybe it just got hot online. Maybe there's a new Netflix show, whatever. So I have something priced at $5, and it just hit eBay at 25 because they announced that, that character. And I hate it when the guys, they don't do it much, but I hate when the guys, they know they're getting a great deal. They're getting it for 5 bucks, but then they still haggle. I call that, you know, being cute. There, uh, there is a dealer, Bob Storms, and he has a good term for it. It's when someone knows they're getting a phenomenal deal, just be happy, shut up, and buy it. Because often... By the time they start haggling, you, your your radar is up, and you say, "Well, wait a minute," and then you realize that, you know, well, it's worth you know double even what you have it for. And then it 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 really it I, I can't I'm I don't lose sleep over, it, but it, it irritates me. I say, "Dude, you're already getting a very fair price, and it's half the price what they're going for now, and you, and you're going to still try and squeeze me for more." And then I have a saying here in the store. I don't do it to the customer, but after they leave, I look at Corey and I say, go away, <laughs> which is my, my way of saying, you know, you are a waste of my time. And I, I, I really get annoyed at those people that I, if someone has something that said, let, let's say someone brings in a house of secrets 92 and they, they have it sticker price at hundred bucks. They said, okay, my sticker price, my price. And I know it's worth 300. I'm not going to try and get it for 80. Say, it's a great price. I'll give you a hundred bucks. Right. You know, I, it just irks me. But anyway. Well, we won't say go away to our listeners, but we will say to yeah. be continued as uh, we will take a pause on our conversation here. We'll resume in two weeks with the next installment of Buying Books with Ben. Ben, thank you very much for uh, being part of this mini series. It's my pleasure. Thank you to everyone for listening. Be sure to come back in two weeks for part two. And until then, just keep punching. Buying Books with Ben will be back in two weeks, but you don't have to wait two weeks for fresh Flat Squirrel content. Head on over to the Patreon page for the exclusive after show. My guest for this episode and the next three episodes is none other than former Alternate Realities owner Steve Odo. It's the after show with Sko, only on Patreon. <laughs>